Loving Father, we uh, thank you that we can come together as your people, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Uh, grow us in Christ Jesus, we ask, all to your praise and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, good morning again, and uh, you should have an outline uh, which might prove useful uh, as we work through Exodus chapters 32, 33, 34. That might do us just three chapters this morning. I want to start by asking you, is, is there any such thing as righteous anger? And if there is such a thing as righteous anger, is it a good thing? And the answer must be yes. But of course the flip side is that unrighteous anger is ugly. Here's another question. What about jealousy? We all know unrighteous jealousy. Well, that's the green monster, isn't it? Uh, there's few emotions that are so, so ugly. It can be petty and corrosive. But rarely do we think of jealousy as being righteous or pure or even godly. Uh, that's our challenge this morning, to think about jealousy as part of the character of God. And to give you a glimpse of what it looks like in a positive form, I was thinking maybe it's like marriage vows. The covenant of uh, promises of love. What do, we, what do we promise? We promise to love and cherish and honour and protect in sickness and in health and forsaking all others to be faithful to him or her as long as you both shall live. As we think about those promises, I wonder, is that a kind of righteous jealousy? Are we asking, will you be jealous for your bride or your groom? And if it's true, then I wonder, is it something we need to foster a little bit more in our marriages? I mean, can you imagine the, the question at marriage counselling? Are you jealous for your wife? Are you jealous for your husband? That would be something, wouldn't it? In chapter 34, verse 14, you may have uh, remember it was read out for us. Chapter 34, verse 14. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. It's hard to find hymns that declare that, isn't it? that sing about the jealousy of God. But nonetheless, it's true. And we find this again in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 1. Exodus chapter 20, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here is 
a declaration of their exclusive relationship. Here is how Israel will live out the holy presence of God in the world, the Ten Commandments. And how did Israel respond to the Ten Commandments? Do we remember? Twice they said, yes, we will do it. It was almost like a wedding day. Yes, we will. I will be your special treasure, forsaking all others. Yes. And as we flick over from chapter 20, over the law and over the tabernacle instructions that we looked at last week, we land at chapter 32. And as we come to chapter 32, where is Moses? Well, he's up on the mountain receiving the law. And it's like God is signing the wedding register, if you like. We always know that takes time, doesn't it? And Israel are getting impatient. Have a look at chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of, up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Can you see already their failure to trust? Can you see their failure to wait on the Lord and their insecurity at Moses' absence? And see their impatience descend into sin. Verse 2, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what was handed him and made it into an idol cast in the image of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, These are your gods, Israel. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship, of, fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, this is exactly what the Lord told them not to do. No sooner does God give them instructions about how he is going to dwell among them, no sooner do they get a glimpse of Eden back, they run off and they make something a gold calf that is somehow to convey the presence of the Lord. Uh, this is a monumental, complete rejection of God and a rejection of his plans and his purposes. Can you see as they make the gold calf, as Aaron makes it, can you see the blueprint for the tabernacle scrunched up and tossed aside, and worse, it's substituted for a statue of a cow. I mean, it's just incredible. If Genesis 3 records the fall of humanity, Exodus 32 records an epic, monumental fall of Israel. I mean, this is what we read in Romans 3, where they suppressed the truth that was revealed to them, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for an idol, a statue of a calf. And so the first two basic and foundational commandments are shattered. Israel have broken their vows. 
And this is abject betrayal. And we should ask at this point, how on earth will Israel survive this? Because all the tension in these chapters, chapter 32 to 34, all the tension is about whether God is going to stick with Israel or whether he's actually going to pack his bags and leave with Moses, leaving Israel literally godless without his presence. And just as another window into this sin and rebellion, get a load of verse 21. Verse 21 of chapter 32. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> it's just incredible, isn't it? It's kind of like um, the child who draws crayon over the walls, and you go, where did that come from? I go, oh, I don't know, it just appeared. Now, have we been here before? Actually, is this the, a real, hey God, it was the woman that you put here in the garden with me, she made me eat it? Is it that kind of moment? Because this is ridiculous, isn't it? And that's the nature of sin. And Aaron's fallen for it, and so have some of the Israelites. It's always someone else's fault. Always someone else to blame. Always someone else to pass the guilt to. And sin will always try and self-justify. And as it is the case here, it can be really pathetic how dumb our excuses can be. And the consequences? Well, let's uh, come back to verse 7. We start to see the consequences. Uh, Verse 7, it says that um, the Lord says to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt, so now they're Moses' people. So there's a distance there. Verse 9, the Lord says they're stiff-necked, which means a, um, that's not about the chiropractor, that's about an inability to bow to God. Uh, they become stiff-necked. And then he says, the Lord says, Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, And then I will make you into a great nation. Um, They're going to be obliterated. That that seems like the prospect. They're done. But the Lord will keep his promises to Abraham. But it's just me and you now, Moses. Uh, Even later on in chapter 33, verse 3 and verse 5, both times the Lord says, you know, you you need to leave. You need to go. Go to the promised land for all I care, but I'm not coming. I'm not coming. And so there is a tension here. And this is yucky and awkward. But notice Moses as mediator. So here's our next point. Moses as mediator. The Lord says, verse 10, leave me alone in chapter 32. And is that what Moses does? Does he actually leave the Lord alone? 
Well, look at verse 11. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, and notice the flick pass, why should your anger burn against your people? Remember, they're yours. Uh, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Uh, why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? And so what is Moses appealing to here as mediator? He's saying to the Lord God, he's saying, well, if you do this, what are, what's everyone else going to say? What are the Egyptians going to say? Did you save Israel for nothing? All that stuff with Pharaoh was so that the whole world will know you. Well, what are they going to say? And can you see Moses appealing to the jealousy of God? And can you see Moses actually being jealous for the Lord's name and the Lord's reputation? You see the same concern in verse 25 later on. Anyway, verse, uh, we'll keep reading verse 12. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Oh, that used to be Jacob, didn't it? Now it's Israel. To whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, well, is this the same Moses who back in chapter 4 said, I've never been eloquent, slow of speech and tongue. Is this the same guy? And we wonder what has changed. And is the difference, not in his ability to speak, but is it the difference that he actually knows the Lord, his God? He's seen the Lord at work. And just as the Lord repeated all those promises so early in the book, it's like Moses returns to serve and says, I know how to relate to you. And I'm going to relate to you based on these promises. Lord, I know you. And I know what you're about. And so, Lord, remember. You promised, remember. Now, this is uh, instructive for us, I think. I mean, do we pray like this? Is this how we relate to the Lord? Do we relate to the Lord based on what he is like? Not on what we need necessarily, but on what the Lord is like. Do we even know what to pray sometimes? Sometimes I meet people that don't even know where to start. Uh, uh, isn't this again instructive as Moses appeals to the character of God? He just tells the Lord who he is like and, and what he's promised. And doesn't this mean that as we come before the Lord, asking him to have mercy on those who don't know Christ, we can know, we can come knowing that he hears us and that our prayers are part and parcel of his purposes in the world. Our prayers are part of the way as to how God gets things done in the world. So this is an encouragement to pray. Verse 14, the Lord relents, which means he's changed course. 
And it's interesting because as Israel are spared their devastating wrath of the Lord, there are still consequences. And so uh, Moses is unleashed. Look at verse 19. Moses goes down the mountain and he experiences firsthand what the Lord was telling him. Verse 19 of 32. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. I don't know what that would do to you, but it doesn't sound good. In verse 27, Moses will get an execution squad together. It's very grim. Uh, They're made up of Levites, which I think suggests that All is well for those attached to the tabernacle. And they cut down 3,000 people with swords. And so we see the seriousness of sin. But we also see that where there is judgment, and we see judgment here, we also see grace. And we know this, there is grace here because we know this was going to be worse, as bad as this is. This was going to be worse. Remember that on account of Moses as the mediator, as yuck as this is, the full measure of the Lord's wrath is averted. But still there are consequences. For if their disobedience is not punished, how will they understand the gravity of sin? Without judgment, there's no concept of grace. Without judgment, his compassion is diluted and lost. Without judgment, well, what's to be forgiven? And so the words in chapter 33, verse 19, the Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Or in chapter 34, verse 6, we heard this read. Moses is on the mountain and the Lord sings. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving sin and wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yeah, he relented, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And here at the end of chapter 32, it seems like Moses seems to get this. That judgment is necessary, but with the Lord there always seems room for grace. And maybe that's the hope in verses 30 to 33 of chapter 32. See, Moses seems to think that even after this execution, that the matter's not finished, that there's still some tension as to how this is going to roll. And maybe the absence of the Lord is still at a possibility, which would be nothing more devastating. And so Moses, the mediator, offers himself. And maybe sin can be atoned that that way. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. This is after your judgment. But now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. 
But now, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Well, there's a window into the future, isn't there? As a man offers himself to make atonement for the people. And of course, the answer the Lord gives to Moses is a big fat no. He said, no, you're not going to do that. Why does the Lord say no? Well, two reasons. Atonement is what the tabernacle is supposed to do. That was the plan. That was the point. The presence of the Lord is what is at stake. And without Moses, the tabernacle goes no further than just being drawings on a bit of paper or papyri, whatever the case. The second reason is, is because Moses isn't fit for the job. He can't die for the sins of the people. He's not fit for that. The Lord will not let Moses do here that which we know Jesus does later. Where the sinless Jesus takes the place of sinful, rebellious people so that those who believe in him might, have be, might be righteous before God and not have to face the punishment due to them. And so we worship a better Moses. We worship one who is perfect and one who mediates on our behalf. And so how does reconciliation come if that's not going to happen? Well, reconciliation comes in the following chapters based on the gracious Lord who does show mercy, who shows mercy and compassion to those on whom he has compassion. And reconciliation also comes about on account of Moses as the one who intimately knows the Lord and who consistently and persistently intercedes on behalf of the Lord's people. And that's the rest of chapter 33. And so in chapter 33, in verses 7 and 11, the Lord and Moses do the regular thing of fellowshipping and talking in the tent, and everybody sees that. In verse 12, we get to stand outside the tent and listen into the conversation. We hear in verse 12 that Moses has the Lord's favour. That verse 13, he invites the Lord again to remember his people. And then in verse 14, the Lord says, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And at that point, we should go, Oh, thank goodness for that. And then there's another appeal to the jealous Lord. Look at verse 15. Moses said to him, If your presence does not go, go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will, be dis will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see, Lord, you make all the difference. Here is another appeal to the reputation of the Lord among the people of the world. He's begging the Lord, please be present. Don't even think about leaving. And of course, it's this same presence of the Lord and it's his glory that Moses is brushed with on Mount Sinai, chapter 34, as the Lord sings that which Moses already understands. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet 
He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Do you know the Lord? That's the invitation of Exodus. Do you know the Lord? Is this the Lord that you know? A Lord of grace upon grace upon grace, but also a Lord who will not tolerate sin and will bring judgment. When John chapter 2 was read out, did you see the jealous God enter the temple in John's gospel? Did you see him as he arrives at the temple during Passover, where he finds the sanctuary designed as God's dwelling place, remember, a place of meeting with God and experiencing reconciliation and fellowship and prayer and the blessing of the nations, it's become a shopping arcade. It's become off those streets. And can you see God make a whip of cords and God turn over the tables, driving traders and animals out? How does he do that without righteous anger? And the disciples, what did they see? They see the one who is consumed with jealousy for the father's house. Can you see the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sins, yes, but see him in the temple lose his lolly. And how does this play out in the life of the church? Well, the Apostle Paul knew the jealousy of God. In chapter 2, sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, He writes to the church, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. It's like the Apostle Paul knows this Jesus is the God of Exodus. The Paul is the matchmaker bringing two parties together in an exclusive relationship of commitment to each other. As the Christians, sorry, as the Corinthians embrace the gospel, they pledge themselves to be married to Christ and Christ alone. They were never, they never would be, and they never were Paul's people. They were only ever Christ's people because it was Christ alone who had come for them. Christ alone who wanted them enough to take on flesh. Christ alone who bound himself to them. Christ alone who wore that grotesque wedding band of thorns upon his head. It was Christ alone who redeemed them from slavery, those horrible taskmasters of sin and Satan, masters willing to exploit them till they dropped dead. It was Christ alone who wanted them enough to die for them. It was Christ alone who in his tender-hearted compassion and loving kindness secured their relationship with him from the ravages of time and sin and death. It was Christ alone who gave himself up for his pure virgin bride, who made her holy, cleansing her with a washing of water by the word, 
so as to present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any, anything of the kind, holy without blemish. Jesus deserves their exclusive loyalty and faithfulness, and he deserves ours. As we think about the jealousy of God, do we honestly think that Jesus, who died for us, will suffer any rivals? He wants us body, mind and spirit. He wants our lives organised to reflect his holiness and purity at home, at work and at church. And the threats in 2 Corinthians, they're just real then as they are today. And so the Apostle Paul knows what it is like to have God's jealousy burn within him. And he knew what it was like to run the sword of the Spirit through rebellious hearts. Paul ached for people to remain faithful and true. He was anxious when they began to wander off or when they were distracted, or when they lapsed. He grieved over their materialism, their self-centeredness, their factionalism, and their sexual impurity, and their willingness to drag God's name through the mud. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? The Lord is a jealous God. And he wanted Israel and he wouldn't settle for anything less. And today, this very day in Christ Jesus, the Lord wants you. And he will not settle for anything less. Amen.